Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. This is 365 Sports, powered by Sikkim365.com. Sam Khan, the Athletic.com, has been busy. Who hasn't been with the last, uh, you know, well, for a lot of things, college football, coaching, carousel. Sam, you were in College Station. We had my, Andrew Monaco on about uh, Mike Elko. Just your one thought about him and in the end, did they get the right guy? Yeah, I think they did. Uh, regardless of how winding the process was, uh, I do think they ended in a really sensible, logical result with Mike Elko. Uh, the one thing that I think that has really been missing from this program the last couple of years as I dove into the end of the Jimbo Fisher era was structure and discipline. And I think that's something that Elko will bring. He's a really smart guy. He's a really no-nonsense guy. And everybody that's ever worked with him, you know, they've, they've described how well he builds relationships. But ultimately, he's just a damn good ball coach. And I think, you know, that that showed itself here at A&M when he was even coordinator. showed itself at Notre Dame at Wake Forest. And, of course, the last few years at Duke. I mean, he, he took that team to back-to-back bowls. There's only one other coach in Duke history that's done that. And so I think he's got a really good path now that he's had a couple years to run a program of what it takes to do that. And bringing that here to a place where he's familiar, he knows the landscape, he's been here enough time, he's recruited here. Uh, I think that familiarity with the current roster, which some of these guys on the roster he recruited, uh, and, and he knows, and his coach, uh, combined with the experience he got at Duke, I think is going to really deliver a lot of promise. I think the key is, can he keep the roster together? Because I think right now, A&M is at a place where they have top five roster talent. How much of that can he keep? If he can keep a lot of it, then I think this this turnaround can happen a lot quicker. If they lose a lot of it, then it becomes a little bit more of an arduous process. Sam, uh, I, I texted you the day because I was I read, reading the article about Jimbo that you and Max and, and Bruce uh, did on the Athletic was really fantastic and uh, so in depth. Uh, when you get into an article like that and have to go through it, what were the things that that kind of surprised you the most about how that was was kind of breaking down at A and M over the over the last couple of years? I was just surprised how stubborn Jimbo was, and not. I think we all could tell, you know, outwardly deal with him. But I didn't realize how much how stubborn he got internally. For instance, like the, the tidbits that we got about he hired Bobby Petrino mostly for Austin. They, they Petrino was calling the plays, but there was still Jimbo's office because Jimbo wanted that badly to prove that his team. And so that that was interesting to hear. 
Uh, obviously, he, he, he didn't really adapt very much uh, in, in some areas. I think in some areas he did, but in a lot of areas he didn't. And it just it, he was the one. It was his program. They gave him the keys to it. He kind of ruled it as he saw fit. And I was really surprised at how disorganized things were. You know, and, and I think you could see some hints of that in 2022 when you had all these suspensions for the freshmen and you saw them struggling on offense and Jimbo's holding a stack of papers that that's picking on a binder to try to call a play and they're having to call a timeout to avoid a delay a game. Things like that certainly gave you a sense that maybe he was a little bit disorganized. But when you talk to people in the program, it was clear there was no real vision for the program. There was no real identity. It was all about just stacking all these players and calling the plays and then let everybody else do their job themselves. And I think that, that the autonomy that the other coaches had is fine. But if you've got young coaches who are in roles for the first time, they need somebody to develop them and they need somebody – uh, to help them along the way. And I just don't think there was any vision or guidance provided uh, there at the end by Jimbo Fisher. So, Sam, I know it doesn't matter as much now after the fact, but from your vantage point and standpoint, uh, how real was the Stoops to A&M stuff uh, initially? Yeah, I think it's still hard to suss through because, you know, you talk to people and I think you get so many different accounts of this. Uh, and, and I, you know, we just dropped your PAD. Um, who made it sound like it was a fluid process and that that Stoops never officially got the offer, so to speak. Um, so I I think it's semantics, right? You know, it, there's always the thing where they say, you know, it never an offer is never made until it's accepted and, you know, it's not done deal until it's done deal and all that stuff. It's clear that they engaged a lot with Mark Stoops on Saturday. I think that much we know. How far they went, I think the – who you ask. If you ask A&M, maybe they say they got to a certain point. If you ask Mark Stoops, it certainly sounded like he thought he was getting that job. Uh, but clearly, they, they had to run that through the board also. You know, Ross York had to run it through, you know, their search committee and their board of regents. And clearly, everybody didn't agree on that, on Stoops being the guy. Um, so I, I'm not sure quite how far they got, but it's clear that they engaged him to a large degree on Saturday. He was clearly one of their finalists. They, they think highly of him as a coach. Uh, but also it was one of their finalists, too, and ultimately it fell through. I, I think it was, that, that's one thing I would love to know. I would love to know all the inner workings of how it went and, and what really happened there, and it, it may take some time to untangle that. But, but uh, ultimately I do think as messy as it may have been on Saturday night, I think they landed on the right result. Sam, uh, Houston is open. Um, <laughs> Willie French, Jeff Trailer, like lots of names will be thrown around there. Ultimately, what was the decision with Dana Holgerson when it came down to it? I think just the trajectory of the program, it was not good. I think it was clear when you see the on-field play, uh, just the mood of the program, the recruiting has not been great. Right now they have a recruiting class that ranks 102nd in the country and worse than the Power Five. They only have eight commits. That's not super encouraging at this point. You're in year five, you're in the Big 12, you're in the city of Houston have a better recruiting class than that, regardless of what your strategy is. Uh, five years, you've only had two winning seasons, and ever since the 12 and 2 year in 2021, it's just declined. You know, they, they were, I think, even though they went 8-5 and five last year, I still thought that was a disappointing season based on what their expectations were and what the schedule was. And then this year, the Big 12 is hard, and every newcomer in the Big 12 had a difficult transition, yes. But a lot of their misuse and losses were to teams that were not legacy Big 12 teams. They lost to Cincinnati. 
by double digits at home. They lost to UCF by double digits on the road. They fell down 28 nothing to right in week two. They did not score a single touchdown offensively against CU. Those are those are things that I just are not acceptable. I think anywhere, uh, and particularly at a place like Houston that has invested a lot of money in infrastructure, a lot of money in staff staff salary pool, and has a fertile recruiting base that they have, the ability to track people on the portal. It just it just didn't add up, and I think. I do think in my heart of hearts, I think when Dana Holgerson took this job, I think he had a vision for what it would be and what it would be like. And I think that build at Houston was a lot harder than he realized. And I think at the end of the day, they knew the mood was not good, the fan response and fan turnout was not good, and they had to do something to change it up. Uh, go ahead, Craig. Sam, we've been talking about this, uh, obviously, uh, here in Waco, the retaining of Dave Aranda. We'll move on from... Uh, Jeff Grimes is offensive coordinator. We just saw Blake Shapin here in the last hour is entering the transfer portal. I don't think it was a big shock that Aranda's staying for another year, but just on your end, your thoughts on that decision and the trajectory uh, or lack thereof right now for Baylor football. Yeah, it's a lot of similar things that we just talked about with Houston in terms of mood of the fan base, trajectory of the program. It's not good since they went and won the Big 12 in 2021. It's been steady decline, and it's really disappointing for a fan base and for alumni for a Baylor program that has won multiple Big 12 titles in the last decade and has played multiple Big 12 titles as well. I, I am not surprised that around back, and I think a lot of it is because Mac Rose believes in Dave Miranda in a big way. I think, I think a lot of people there are rooting for Dave to succeed because of who he is as a person. And I understand what they're trying to do with changing the offensive coordinator and Dave calling the defense and all these, you know, we're going to stack up the NIL and all that. I get all that. But I do have to ask the question of if this is what it's going to take to get it to work, what are we really doing here? What, what does that say about who you have as the head coach? And I get it. He's a first-time head coach, and he's still learning, evolving on the job. But we're going into year five. And I, I think it really with a situation because now – you're going into year five that you usually make or break. So how hard is that going to make to hire a good offensive coordinator when they know it's a make or break year? And you're going to put a lot of pressure on him. And are we going to be are we going to be in a situation where we're talking about a, a midseason change next year because they've gotten off to a close start? Uh, because to me, the issues on that team go well beyond just the head coach. I think there's a talent issue there. Uh, certainly, obviously, there was you know there were some issues on either side of the ball. Uh, I, I just I don't know if those all can be fixed in one off season. But it's they're making a big bet on days being days, and and I, and I guess I understand that because what attracted everybody to David Enda was his mind, his defensive prowess, and what he did as a defensive coordinator. But it's a big bet to make, and I, and it's a bold one, and I'm interested to see how it works out. Sam, thank you. I know it's been a busy few days, and uh, we'll, we'll slow down because of the championship game. My last question for you on Oklahoma State-Texas on Saturday. UT right now is in a steamroll-type mode. They are red hot, peaking, it seems, at the right time. Mike Gundy's group, they find a way. Uh, your thoughts about the matchup itself? Yeah, I think uh, I haven't seen the line. I would assume Texas is favored. It should be because of the talent level. To me, this comes down to is Texas going to play like they did against Kansas State or Houston 
or uh, a game like that, or are they going to play like they did against Alabama and Texas Tech? What Texas team is going to show up? Because if the team that shows up is the one we saw last week against Texas Tech or the one we saw against Alabama, then I think Texas wins it running away. If we see the team that played against Kansas City or against Houston that messes around and gets out to a lead and then plays with their food for two and a half quarters, Oklahoma State will get you. And they showed that. I mean, they, BYU had them down pretty significantly the other night, and they chipped away and they chipped away. They've got a veteran quarterback with Alan Bowman. They've got a really dynamite running back in Ollie Gordon, and they've got a really veteran coaching staff. Gundy's been doing this before. He's been in this situation before. Uh, I think one thing that's underrated about this matchup is this Clark has been in this spot as a coordinator. He's never been in this spot as a head coach in a conference championship game. So I'm really interested to see how, how his team comes out prepared for this one. But ultimately, I think Texas will, will end up winning this game. I think the talent differential is too much. And I do think they're going to – I think the, them having an effort like they did against Texas Tech, I think, they, I think they've woken up a little bit. And I'd like you said, Dave, I think they're peaking at the right time. I'm interested to see if it plays out that way on Saturday. Sam, thank you for your time as always. Sam, come with us, theathletic.com. He was in College Station uh, with the introduction of Mike Elko, his thoughts about that, much other uh, when it comes to Aranda and also the game between Oklahoma State and Texas on Saturday. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.